from verses 5 down through to the end of this chapter, it describes the Middle East as being a powder keg. Sounds very similar to modern times. In fact, a lot of people act as if uh, the modern situation, you know, is a, a sign that the end is here. Well, there's been a powder keg in the Middle East uh, ever since there's been a history in the Middle East. Uh, it's not the first time that troops have been sent in there trying to mediate some kind of a peace when Americans went in there. Uh, before the Americans, the uh, British tried very unsuccessfully to mediate peace, and before the British, the French were in there, and before the, uh, the French, the Turks and the Saracens and the Crusaders and the Mongols and the Greeks and the Romans. And this passage here uh, shows one attempt after another. Actually, this whole chapter does. One attempt after another prior to the times of the Romans and then on into the times of the Romans to mediate peace there, totally unsuccessfully. And um, uh, the scriptures indicate that peace is not going to come to the Middle East until Egypt, Israel, and Iraq become converted. And I want to read a scripture <clears throat> that indicates that uh, uh, those three countries will be converted one day. And by the way, if you err in the opposite direction of what we've just been talking about, and you happen to be influenced by hyperpreterism, hyperpreterism is where you say there aren't any prophecies yet to be fulfilled, um, that they've all been fulfilled, I challenge you to find any period in history where this particular passage in Isaiah 19 has been fulfilled. There is no way, there is no period of history where that has happened, but it's going to happen, the conversion of those three nations. Isaiah 19, let me just read verse 18. It says, In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. So in that verse, you've got a ratio of five that believe in God to one, five to one, pretty healthy ratio, but it increases even more as you go down through the passage. Verse 22 describes subsequent history. And the Lord will strike Egypt, he will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And Assyria, the area there, includes at least Iraq, uh, a, a good chunk of uh, Iran, as well as of, um, of modern-day uh, modern Syria. Now, the point of reading that is that there are many scriptures like that indicating that peace will only come to the Middle East through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, not through political means. In fact, every political trick in the book has been tried in this chapter and has absolutely uh, failed. And uh, the kinds of wars that uh, you see in this chapter are not signs of the end. Conversion is signs of the end, really. Uh, and I think it's irresponsible when pastors teach that it is a sign of the end. These things have gone on down through history. Now, they are signs of something. They're signs of uh, man's need of conversion. They're signs of man's depravity. Uh, they are signs uh, of the fact that men have in their hearts pride and anger and deceit and racial discrimination and other things that lead to problems. And uh, what we're going to do 
is we're going to look at a number of practical implications we can apply in our lives to our prayer for the nations, as well as in our families, uh, in terms of our comfort with the Lord's control over history, some of the things that we can be praying against um, as strongholds in other nations. But first of all, I think uh, we need to get a historical grasp of what is going on here. So I'm going to give a quick overview of verses 10 through 19. And that passage, verses 10 through 19, deals with one king in the north, in the area of Syria, which was back in those days a vast area, and two kings in the south. The king in the north is Antiochus III, and the two kings in the south are Seleucus uh, II and III. Well, let's begin at verse 10. Daniel 11 and verse 10. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. Now, when we were in the passage last time, we saw in verse 9 uh, that the king there of the north was Seleucus II, and his sons, um, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, did indeed stir up a great deal of strife. They were very much involved in military campaigns. And I want you to notice that the plural is used in the first half of verse 10, but the singular is used in the second half, in the second clause. And the reason for that is that during the first two years, both of them were involved in military campaign, those brothers. But Seleucus uh, III was murdered, and that left only Antiochus III. And so even in terms of the grammar, it accurately reflects the history. Now, this is really important to realize in terms of the inerrancy of Scripture as we go through this passage, because verse 10 occurs 314, it was prophesied 314 years before the events of verse 10 began to transpire. So uh, in the first phrase, Seleucus III and his brother, in the second clause, it's um, just Antiochus III. And speaking of him, it says... And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Uh, this is a reference to Antiochus, who after conquering Phoenicia and conquering Palestine, going through Palestine all the way down to Egypt, decided he needed reinforcements before he attacked Egypt. So he went back to Syria, got those reinforcements. Two years later, came back and invaded uh, Egypt all the way to the fortress of Raphia. And history tells us the southern king, uh, who was Ptolemy IV, was so indolent, so caught up in his pleasure two years earlier when he conquered his territory of, um, of, uh, of Palestine and uh, Phoenicia, he didn't even bother fighting. It wasn't until he actually invaded Egypt that he got really mad. And verse 11 says, The king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. Now, Ptolemy IV, uh, who was the king of Egypt, that's the king of the south, he launched a counterattack with 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. And it was a complete, resounding victory. He captured the entire army of Antiochus. In fact, Antiochus barely escaped with his life by fleeing by himself out into the desert. And so very literally, the entire multitude, which doesn't happen very often, the entire army was taken captive. Verse 12 goes on. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. This explains uh, what he did with some of those troops uh, that had been conquered 
And many commentators say it's uh, a reference to what history tells us of the 10,000 Syrians who were cast down. I think it includes that. But I think it's also referring to how he lifted up his heart against God himself and began to cast down some of the Jews. Uh, let me just give an explanation of how that happened. Uh, at the time, or before this victory, uh, Ptolemy IV gave Israel very most favored nation status. You know, he gave them all kinds of privileges other nations did not have. And uh, at the time of this victory, he went from uh, province to province throughout the eastern Mediterranean, uh, celebrating his victory, giving gifts to various temples, including the temple in Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem, his curiosity got the better of him, and he wanted to see what was in the Holy of Holies, what was so secret about why people couldn't go in there. And uh, when he attempted to force his way in, he was resisted by the priests and uh, by uh, other people there. Uh, Jewish tradition says he was struck down by paralysis. Whether that happened or not, we're not sure from the history books, but whatever the case, he immediately went to Egypt, and history tells us from that point on, the Israelites had all of their privileges revoked, and he began to attack uh, the Israelites, and many Israelites suffered as a result. Verse 13 tells us he's not going to prevail in that persecution. And the way God uses it, I won't be dealing with this in terms of an application, but we saw before how God had used Egypt to keep Syria from being an undue burden to Israel when Syria was in control of Israel. Now he's using Syria to keep Egypt from being an undue burden in Israel now that Egypt controls it. Remember how we saw how God uses humanism to fight against humanism to protect his people, sort of the Babel, Tower of Babel all over again. Well, verse 13 says, For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years. And depending on which chronology you look at, it's either 12 or 15 years later, at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. <clears throat> verse 14 then describes how Antiochus got help during this attack from people within his enemy's territory, within the Ptolemaic Empire, especially from Macedon and some of the citizens of Israel. Not the government of Israel, but some of the citizens. It says, In those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also certain violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. Uh, there were brigand Jews who convinced many of the Israelites, this is the time to throw off the yoke of Egypt, and so they, they fought against uh, uh, Egypt. Now, even though these Israelites had aligned themselves with the winning side, which was the north, this passage says they got toasted. How did that happen? Well, it was the timing factor. They just didn't have it quite right, and it seemed that Israel was always messing up and who they sided with. But what happened is that the, uh, the king of the south sent Scopus, his uh, main general, uh, he sent <clears throat> him up and they totally devastated Israel, put down that insurrection before Scopus went on. He was defeated by Antiochus. He flees to Sidon and holds up there and finally uh, surrenders in 198 BC. And that's what verse 15 is describing, that siege of Sidon. It says, so the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to withstand. Now, the choice troops of the south were the Egyptian uh, 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 leaders and their troops of um, Europus, Menecles, and Damoyennus. 
who were unable to rescue the besieged Sidon. Uh, Verse 16 says, But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. Antiochus at this point uh, has complete domination over Israel. Nobody's able to withstand him. And I should point out that between these verses in 203, somehow the king of the south and his wife, Ptolemy IV and his wife, mysteriously die at the same time. Some people hypothesize it was a poisoning. We're not sure how they, they died, but uh, the next verse, verse 17, indicates Antiochus takes advantage of that weak situation because their infant son gets on the throne, four years old at that time, and so they engage uh, them in a battle. And it says in verse 17, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. Uh, He is completely successful in his campaign against uh, Egypt. And yet all of a sudden, in spite of this success, he makes a peace treaty. Uh, Now, in the over 300 years that led up to this period of time, from the time the prophecy was given, many people must have puzzled if this was such a a, a dominant victory that he has, why does he have a peace treaty? From hindsight, we know why. Because from hindsight, we realize that Rome was threatening to attack Antiochus. And so Antiochus now needs an ally, and so instead of having Egypt as an enemy, he decides he needs them as an ally. And so he makes a peace treaty, and uh, part of the way that he does it is uh, through uh, giving his... Um, a daughter in marriage, and he has ulterior motives in doing this. Take a look at the second uh, a sentence in verse 17. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. In other words, his purpose was to undermine Egypt and to get Egypt uh, into his pocket, as it were, and so he thinks, here's a kid, I'll marry him off to my beautiful daughter, and I'll be able to control that kingdom completely. And uh, that marriage actually backfires because um, uh, his daughter Cleopatra uh, falls in love with this uh, boy. The marriage wasn't consummated till four years later when he was 11 years old, but uh, really loves him and fights against her father, uh, even getting Rome to fight against her father and align with them. And so it completely backfires. And you can read the details in the history books. Verse 18 then describes some of the further setbacks that Antiochus receives as he tries to conquer uh, uh, Asia Minor and Greece, and uh, he should have just been content with where he was, but it says, after this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler, and that ruler is the Roman consul, Lucius Scipio Asiaticus, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Now, the reproach he's talking about is the horrible treatment that Antiochus gave to the ambassador from Rome. Rome was saying, you know, don't meddle in this area. And he just treated them very rudely and says, Rome has no business in Asia Minor. And so the reproach being turned back upon them was the peace treaty and the way it was settled. Peace treaty was, you've got to give up all your territory west of the Taurus Mountains. And you cannot go into Europe, so he lost a huge chunk of territory. Plus, 
uh, he had to pay in an annual indemnity of 15,000 talents, which was just an incredible sum of money. And as an insurance policy to make sure that they paid that money, he took captive uh, 12 of the high ruling members of the Syrian nobility. So you can see it just ruined uh, the, the country of Syria. And so the next passage indicates he's got trouble at home. He's got to defend things back at his own fortress. Uh, it goes on, it says, Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. On the way there, in order to get money, which he didn't have to pay this indemnity, he's robbing some of the pagan temples. Well, at one of those pagan temples, a furious mob kills him, and that's where verse 19 ends. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Now, I just enjoy seeing how perfectly history was written ahead of time by God. God rules history, not man. And I think the fact that he's prophesied this history so many hundred years before and all of its details is proof positive of that. And if God rules the future, as well as the present, as well as the past, that means we can have confidence in God. We don't need to worry when it seems as if this world is topsy-turvy. It seemed like things were out of control back then. They were not out of control. We have a God who controls every aspect of history. We can have faith in him. A second application is that the battle belongs to the Lord, not to the strong. And uh, several of the battles that occur in this chapter are won against overwhelming odds. Uh, we describe the battle with Alexander the Great where it's just you shake your head and wonder how in the world did Alexander win that battle? The odds were so incredible. And down through history, you can see God's hand working where it, other than God's intervention, it would have been impossible for a smaller a group of people to win the way that they did. The battle belongs to the Lord, not to the strong. Now, there are several further applications I want to make and spend a little bit more time on. And the first one is that there are some strongholds that we need to pray against when we pray for peace and we pray for the advancement of the gospel in the Middle East, in Somalia, in Bosnia, and in other parts, the hot spots of the country. Uh, we need to be praying against these strongholds and the first thing we should pray against is anger and the strife and the bitterness and malice, all of those things that flow forth from that. And you can see that throughout this passage, but take a look at verse 10. Uh, it says there, however, his sons shall stir up strife. Now, why did his sons stir up strife? Because they wanted to avenge their dad's humiliation at the, the hands of Ptolemy III. Well, why did Ptolemy III decide to humiliate his dad? Well, it was because he was avenging the murder of his sister by Laodice, who was the queen of the north. And um, the reason Laodice murdered Berenice is because, you know, she had been divorced by her husband because of this treaty where Berenice had now been the wife. And you go on and on through this passage and you can see how it's one revenge after another, people's bitterness of heart welling up within them. In verse 10, it talks about the anger, the stirring up of the strife. And in verse uh, 11, that leads to rage in the southern kingdom. And... Um, it almost reminds me of some of the mindless, heated uh, family feuds uh, that existed like between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Uh, some of you have read about that in early American history where some of the ancestors didn't even realize what the original reasons were why they were fighting each other, why they hated each other so much. 
And you know, that is exactly what is happening in Somalia and Bosnia and the Middle East and in so many hot spots of the world. Strife is stirred up by people who refuse to cover over transgressions. And you know, we can use passages like this to teach our children the devastating, devastating results of not covering over anger, of not dealing with your anger, not repenting of the bitterness and the hatred of our heart because it just stirs up more hatred. It escalates into worse and worse things. Uh, this can be applied in the church. Hebrews 12:15 warns us to beware lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. See, it's not just in the Middle East that this can happen. It can happen right within the church that Hebrews was talking about. Your bitterness, when it is not dealt with by the grace of God, will cause trouble. Uh, it says here that many in the church can be defiled by one person's bitterness in that church that is not resolved by the grace of the Lord. And it's only God's grace that can resolve the powder keg in Egypt. It's only God's grace that can enable you to be a peacemaker when others have been bitter against you, have hurt you, have wounded you. I've seen churches, I have seen families that are powder kegs every bit as much as the Middle East is. And Paul's admonition is this, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Not just certain anger, but he says, let all bitterness, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Now, that's pretty radical forgiveness, to forgive just as God forgave us. God didn't wait till we took the first step, did he? Now, he forgave us before we took that first step. He worked in our lives. Uh, he pr produced all kinds of benefits and kindnesses in our life. And that's what the last few verses of Romans uh, 12 are all about. Nine through the end of the chapter, I think it is. Where he talks about all kinds of ways that we can not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Teach your children the terrible results of anger and malice and bitterness. Proverbs 15.1, for example, says, A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Anger leads to more anger. And these kings may have seemed extremely powerful because of their wrath, but the scripture says exactly the opposite. In Proverbs it says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. It takes a lot more than military genius to control your spirit, okay? It takes the grace of God, and I believe that grace is the foundation to any lasting peace. And we need to be praying against the inflaming of the passions that's going on by Muslim clerics and by the news media. We need to be praying against the passions that are passed down from father to child to grandchild to great-grandchild. Those are strongholds that need to be attacked by the Holy Spirit. Another stronghold that aided and abetted the powder keg situation there is seen in verse 12. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. Pride. Victory gave him pride, which ironically led him to even more aggression. And I believe that pride is one of those things that makes 
peacekeeping missions almost impossible to succeed. You know, when Jimmy Carter and other people go out there, they shake their heads. They're just frustrated with these people. Well, what's happening? Uh, one country, if they've lost the battle previously, they feel like they, uh, in order to save their pride, need to get revenge in the future. And if they've won, their pride is going to keep them from backing down. Their pride is going to keep them from admitting that they have done wrong. And so pride is one of those strongholds that we must pray against if we are to achieve the prophesied peace that God has ordained for this world. And remember, he doesn't do it in the abstract. He does it through the means of his people. He calls his people to pray on their behalf. Pride has led to church splits. Pride has led husband and wife not to make up with each other because who's the first one who's going to back down? Pride is a devastating thing. In fact, all sins, I believe, flow from pride. Um, that was the first sin of, of, of Lucifer. It was pride. And let me tell you, you will not understand the depth of the pride of your heart. Pride's that in every human heart. But you will not understand that until God's grace begins to work in your heart. And you for sure are not going to crucify that pride until God's grace begins to work in your heart. So you need to pray against the pride out there. You need to pray against the pride that's in your own heart. Another thing that needs to be prayed against is intrigue and deceit. And there's a lot of examples of that actually in this chapter. But verse 17 I think is a, a great example of that. The sole reason that Antiochus gave his, uh, excuse me, uh, that um, yeah, Cleopatra was given to Ptolemy V was as a political expedient to undermine Egypt. It was intrigue. It was deceitfulness that he was pursuing. Now, God sovereignly overruled that. But again, one of the key reasons why peace talks keep breaking down is that nobody can trust the other person. There is no integrity in people's lives, and they don't trust the word of this other person who has signed on to that peace treaty. And again, it is only through the grace of God that sufficient trust levels will be achieved for a lasting peace. Political solutions, you know, they will be temporary. But if we engage in evangelism, we begin discipling the nations as the Great Commission calls us to do, that's where true peace, lasting peace, will achieve. And I think even in terms of our homes, we need to take lying very seriously. In our home, uh, lying is one of three crimes that receives the harshest discipline. If one of the kids is caught outright where it's, it's very clear that they have lied, automatic, no mercy, the harshest discipline, because where there is lying and deceit, Everything is undermined in terms of the advancement of godliness in a home. So the third application is that these are three things we need to be praying against out there in the world and in our own hearts, anger and all that it leads to, pride and deceitfulness. A fourth application that can be made is that patriot movements can be both godly and they can be ungodly. They can be very humanistic. Now, I'm a patriot. But I don't like a lot of what I see in the American patriot movement, and I don't think Daniel liked a lot of what he saw in the patriot movement in Israel in verse 14. It says, In those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also certain violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. Now, I don't mind being on the losing side, you know, if it's God who's called us to conflict, but the reason these people fell is because God does not like anarchy. God does not like anti-authoritarianism that these people held to. Uh, nobody had elected these people to government. It says they exalted themselves. They did not earn any position through service in their community. It says 
<coughs> that they exalted themselves. <coughs> In Scripture, the only people who can raise the sword against a government are those who are conscripted by a lawfully ordained government. Whether it's at the city, the county, or the, the state level, it has got to be a government who did that. That was not the case here. These people were not militias trained at the county level or at the state level of government. They were people who decided, we're going to throw off the, the yoke of government. They didn't ask their political leaders if they wanted to do that. Now, if their political leaders had said, yes, we want to go to war, as later on happens and is praised by God, that would have been one thing. Uh, if even at the city level they had decided to do that, that could have been justifiable. But these people exalted themselves. Now, the literal Hebrew also describes them, <clears throat> and you can see this in the margin of some, of, uh, some versions, describes them as sons of breakage, because in the name of freedom they were willing to destroy order. Uh, we've taught in the past that anarchy is always worse than tyranny. And you can look in Africa and you'll see anarchy is always worse than tyranny. Now, Scripture does give lawful means of opposition to tyranny. We're not going to deal with that this morning. If they had had government uh, to back them in their opposition, that would have been one thing. But we got to beware of organizations that tear down authority without ever being under authority themselves. Such people prove themselves to be sons of breakage. Now, many times patriots... Uh, will uh, speak of the war for independence as the American Revolution. It was not a revolution. Uh, it was a lawful war of one government against another government. Okay? Uh, it was not a revolution. Uh, some people speak of the war between the states as a revolution. It was not. It was governments fighting against other governments. And uh, things like that can be justified, but Revolution, in my opinion, can never, ever be justified. And all you have to do is look in Africa at the various governments that were overthrown by a revolution, and what do you find? It is succeeded by one revolution after another. It's just a never-ending thing. Why? Because they have destroyed people's respect for authority. That was the whole basis of the revolution. They've robbed the people of a philosophy of submission to order. They are sons of breakage because they break law and order. There are a number of other applications, and you've got those in your boxes and the discussion questions, but I'm just going to end with one more, and uh, it's uh, found in verse 16. Israel there is called the glorious land, or literally the beautiful land, not because it was so beautiful in terms of topography. It really was not. There were many nations around it that were far more beautiful uh, than Israel was, but it was called the beautiful or the glorious land because of the presence, God's glorious presence that was within it. And God's presence makes all the difference in a country, in a church, in a family, in an individual. <clears throat> I have seen people that you could, and I won't tell you who they are, but you, they're, they're not here. We'll, we'll use illustrations outside the church, okay? But I've seen people who you could truly say were homely people, not really beautiful, and yet when you got to know them, you'd, you'd have to come away and say, those are beautiful people because of the indwelling spirit of God within them. On the other hand, I have met people that the world would probably, you know, whistle at, just say, boy, gorgeous, or handsome, handsome guys. And yet, I have thought that they were ugly because they had an ugly spirit about them. It's not so much the outward beauty that's important, 
but the inward spiritual beauty. It's not so much the, the outward circumstances of a church or a nation that are important, but the presence of Almighty God dwelling within His people. Now, if you are not indwelt with the Spirit of God, you are not saved. You are not one of God's people. And you can have that beauty only by coming to Christ. You know, Christ died because of our sins. All of those ugly things that we've talked about, like anger and deceit and, um, and rebellion, all of the sins that make us ugly, He died in our pl place. And when we put our trust in Christ, when we cast our sins on the Lord Jesus Christ, He gives to us His righteousness and makes us look beautiful in God's sight. He gives to us His glorious Holy Spirit. He begins to transform us from glory to glory. He begins to make all things new. And so if you do not know that the Lord Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, I urge you to trust in Him. Uh, trust Him today. But each one of us, may we benefit from the lessons that we've learned here, not just academically, but beginning to practice them, beginning to live them out. I hope you discuss those discussion questions in your family and in your home groups, because God wants us to be different people as a result of having heard His Word. Amen.